All right, so we're continuing our long series. This will be the 30th lesson. We're continuing chapter 5 of the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. Element 5 is called Jesus Christ the Mediator, and so it's an introduction to Christology. And to be quite frank, uh, Element 5 is sort of a series and it's within a series. Um, I actually uh, hope to be, write a book out of these materials based on Hebrews 11.3 that says, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of your faith. One of the things I really hope I can get across today is I've never heard anybody teach. Uh, I've heard almost all gospel presentations have that Jesus is the one and only mediator. He's the bridge. He's the answer. Something like this. Uh, you know, First Timothy says that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And uh, obviously the Christian faith falls or rises on Jesus. We've, we've highlighted Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? Uh, and everything falls or rises on who you say. But we have a tendency to think of the gospel in modern times as the bare bones ingredients and as a one-time sinner's prayer or decision when the gospel is for everyday life. The early church, one of the things that you have to kind of get, if you're really going to make progress in understanding the Bible, you have to get this thought through your mind and in your heart and begin to study the Bible accordingly. The early church saw it more clearly than the moderns, even the modern Bible-believing. Modern Bible-believing Christians have added a lot of modernism to how we interpret the Bible. And... Uh, the apostles and the disciples of the apostles. If you want to read, uh, if you want to understand uh, the apostle John and the Gospel of John, well, you might consider reading some of Polycarp's uh, writings because he was a disciple of the apostle of John, and uh, obviously, someone who knew him well would have more uh, ability to understand his mind and heart. So, with the Gospels. The church called them the Gospels. The, the, the historical narrative accounts of Jesus, all his deeds, all his teachings, who he is, what he did, they are worth a lifelong study, and they are part of walking in the Gospel. If you want to get Paul's message of Galatians, which is that he was alarmed, he was, he was horrified that these people had started by grace and were now trying to perfect themselves by performance. They had started, received the Spirit by hearing with faith, and now they were trying to perfect themselves uh, by performance-based works instead of works that come out of the grace and Spirit and resurrection and life of Christ. That's what Paul's getting after in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so if you really want to get a hold of that, understand that the, the answer to that is, is Jesus himself. Jesus is the grace of God. John chapter 1, uh, the law came through Moses, which was a type of grace. He's not saying it's, it's not grace. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ and grace upon grace. In other words, the grace that God said when he told, in Deuteronomy said to Israel, you, I didn't choose you because you were more in number or anything like that. 
that grace, God is adding to it, and he finally gives us the complete version of it in the person of Jesus Christ. So as we as we wrestle with Jesus Christ, as we relate to him, as we meditate on him, as we do what Hebrews says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our faith, uh, that is, in essence, life. His I am sayings, uh, he, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the light, etc. So, uh, yeah, we've been uh, we're going to do this uh, Christology thing a little bit more than any gospel presentation I've ever heard. Uh, but I think I think if you can understand that relating to Christ every minute of every day is the gospel. That's why the church had the two things that it will really help you is that modern say read the Gospel of John first. There was a reason that the that the early church put the Gospel of Matthew first. Just saying. Um, and I, I would just say that the early church had it better than the moderns. They understood things more clearly. When you can see why Matthew is the necessary bridge between both Testaments, you'll uh, be starting to understand the Bible. And uh, the other thing that the, the um, early church had right is the foundation of our faith is not the didactic teachings of the epistles, but it's the historical narrative of the person of Jesus Christ. Our faith is the only faith in the world that is actually rooted in historical events, and more than just rooted in historical events, it's rooted in an eternal and historical person, our Lord Jesus Christ. So today we're going to continue with the ministry of Jesus. If you want to look in Roman numeral 4 on your outline on the front page, you can review uh, what we've covered in parts uh, Roman and uh, element 5a through j, and, uh, or a through i, I'm sorry. In last week, part 5i, we, looked, we began to look at the ministry of Jesus, and we talked about the things that he proclaimed or he declared. Uh, we, sometimes when you read some English translations, it'll use the word preach. I like to always take that back to the Greek and retranslate it, announce, declare, or proclaim, because we tend to think of preaching as something that we do behind church doors with a guy with a funny tie on and only to the Christians. And, uh, and uh, we think of an evangelist as someone who comes to the church every once in a while for three or four days, and we have a revival, and the evangelist tries to convert the Christians into becoming real Christians <laughs> or something. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, and then people who are 12 go down for the 37th time to, <laughs> to receive Jesus. And, uh, and uh, because... Um, well, anyway, so a lot of you laugh because you've been there. Uh, <laughs> I always ask, I actually ask people who grew up in kind of a altar call, kind of a thinking of Christianity, like how many times did you go forward and how many times before you went forward did you start to think that maybe you really had received Christ or something? And how many times before you started to understand anything about Christ and the gospel? Um, so uh, that's... My our uh, appeal the last couple of weeks for uh, gospel-centered catechism, 
Anyway, so last week we looked at Jesus' declarations, and uh, there's three uh, things that he declared right there in the synagogues and elsewhere. We talked a little bit about the life of the synagogue. Um, jumping out to Roman numeral five, I gave us two preliminary uh, reminders. The magnitude of Je Jesus' ministry, John 21 through 25. John uh, ends his great treatise of the historical narrative of Christ and his deeds and teachings by saying, I, uh, many other things Jesus did, and I suppose if all of them were written in a book, uh, not even the world itself could contain the books. Kind of a awesome statement, really. And then uh, we looked at the, I just reminded us of something we've taught several times in this, in this element five, that Jesus is very clearly stating that he is the model, he is the pattern. Any of you who are going to the Tuesday night Bible study, which I'm really trying to encourage more people to go to, because I'm laying out over the next two or three years what our real vision is, um, will understand that we believe there's patterns in the scripture because of the approach of proof texts and just taking things out of isolation instead of reading, reading the scriptures systematically, comprehensively, looking for major themes, one of the things we're missing is there's patterns. There's patterns for what the church should be. And we don't have a right through uh, church growth movements or whatever else modern comes along to change the patterns. If we can find the pattern, it'll work. And in fact, the thing we're talking about today called discipleship, if we could really start to understand discipleship more biblically, that is so much better than a seeker-sensitive, marketing-oriented, or what, whatever kind of approach that brings people into some sort of shallow experience with Christ. If we do what Jesus intended to make full-out disciples— the potential of that, even in numbers, is greater. The uh, largest uh, megachurch, church growth, following church growth principles, uh, churches in the United States are around 34,000. Uh, the founder of the whole seeker-sensitive version, there's, there's different versions. There's the Rhema Bible versions out of Oklahoma and Texas, of which there's one in Van, a couple in Vandalia area and so forth. There's seeker-sensitive versions out of the Willow Creek model in Chicago, and there's all these different versions of, of the church growth movement and mega churches. But um, interestingly, uh, the Willow Creek model people, they do so well in some areas. Uh, the one in, in Dayton is just a couple thousand people. But the one in Toledo is like 14,000. The one in Chicago is like 34,000. And they actually say from the pulpit, listen, this is a uh, gateway church into Christ. We uh, focus everything on the non-believer and, and their seeking Christ and coming to know Christ. We are not about messages for deepening your Christian life. If you're no longer being challenged to grow and be fed here, there are great churches throughout the city. Go to them. And that's awesome posture, I think. Uh, and I and I always want to start with re, you know reminding ourselves that these people are trying um, a strategy. I just think that we need to make sure our strategies are more biblical. But what they uh, found out, they did this study because they they have computers that track everyone, whether they've taken the baptism class or the, this or that class, and so forth. 
And uh, they, you know, they knew that there was this massive turnstile thing where, th- where thousands of people left as much as thousands came. And the, the idea was to get more people coming in this turnstile than were going out of the turnstile and to not watch the back door, so to speak. So if we pick up 100 this year and we lose 90, it's good year. And uh, that's kind of the philosophy thereof. And um, they had always assumed that uh, people were doing what they encouraged them to do, that they were leaving to find better churches. However, they did a study, and they completely found out that uh, the people were just going back to their old life, that they were leaving the Lord altogether, stop reading their Bible, stop seeking God, start, stop going to church, going back to their sinful way of life, and so forth. And they even act, issued a, a public uh, repentance, although uh, they haven't tried another strategy. So, and I'm not trying to pick on one particular movement or another. What I'm trying to say is this. Jesus' method in modern times has not been tried and found wanting. It just really hasn't been tried. And so what I want to appeal to us today is to, re- to step back. No matter how much you think I grew up in, we, in a disciple thing and, and we disciple and so forth, I want you to consider discipleship a little bit today all over again. And I want you to say, gee, do we have missing elements? Because if you just took the fact that Jesus discipled people three and a half years, so let's say it would take uh, someone who's less skilled and obviously less Christ-like uh, eight years. And then the two of us made disciples uh, the next eight years, and then the four the next eight years, and then four, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In a couple hundred years, that would be all over four million people involved. There is no faster growth than multiplication, but what we've neglected part in the modern world, and I hope to help you see this a little bit, at least start getting you thinking about what we've done in the modern world is we're so marketing oriented and we have so Americanized and we so think bigger is better and more, more, like if there's more people involved, then it must be right. And if it has a nicer building, if it's dressed nicer and has better cars in the parking lot, we, we have these kind of assumptions in American culture. And I don't hear anyone really saying, Hold it. Let's forget about quantity for a little bit. And let's really, 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 I mean really. I really, really mean really. Think about depth, clarity, quality, reality. How far are we taking people in Christ? Because I believe that there's kind of a place you arrive in in the things of God, once you're properly founded, where you'll walk with God for a lifetime, where 100% of people who reach that point will walk with God for a lifetime. I believe that's, in, in, in fact, what the perseverance of the saints doctrine is all about. So let's uh, re-examine a little, some things about discipleship first today. I tried to get that in, like last week I just tried to bite off more, so I like had five minutes at the end tried to throw out a few things about discipleship, so I just decided we'd just do discipleship over again this week, because I had bit off more than I could chew last week. Um, I want to think, make, talk about three things, leaving and cleaving, three kinds of discipleship, and three ministries of all disciples. Number one, 
leaving and cleaving. I think this is probably one of, well, of the three missing ingredients today. Uh, so many Christians I talk to ha- have never properly left their old values, their old priorities, their old relationships, their old way of life, their old attitudes, their old motivations. They've never really been converted by the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see something about how Jesus calls disciples. You must leave. You must be severed from. You must renounce. A New Testament word that's never talked about is renounce. And renounce means to disown, disavow, break all loyalties with, all covenants, make new covenants, make new agreements, uh, leave completely behind. If you were going to translate it, into um, renounce, if you wanted to put it in modern terms, it would mean to have no shared files, no, in, no connectivity, no way of getting there, and uh, that sort of thing. So most important, very important. In Matthew 4, 19 through 22, we see uh, Matthew's version. In Luke 5, we see Luke's version of Jesus calling uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, I would encourage you to read it in more detail than I have room. You know, I always just cut and paste to what I can fit on a page. But in verse 19, he says to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, again, reading the reverse negative, if you are not taking seriously becoming a fisher of men, then you're not a follower of Christ. You may be religious, you may be going to church on Sundays, but you're not a follower of Christ until you are taking seriously the uh, idea of becoming a fisher of men. Now, there's uh, people who watch the games. Bradbury helped me get a nice TV so I could watch the games better. But I don't have any football equipment. I certainly don't have a football body. I'm not in shape enough to play football. Uh, I haven't played football since I was 35 years old, which is back when the earth's crust was still cooling. And, no, uh, way, way before most of you were born, actually, and, uh, or at least many of you. And, um, you know, so I'm a football fan. And that's kind of the whole point of what we're struggling with in Christianity today. Like, we turn people into consumers of religious services. So we like to focus on, like, we like the churches that have the best entertainment. The most flamboyant or charismatic speaker, uh, the nice, you know, best quality worship music, what you know, the nicest light show, smoke coming out of the speakers. Uh, <laughs> well, we've had that, but not not because we intended it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I think we had the speakers blow up in the middle of a meeting once, didn't we? <laughs> or at least they went out. But uh, I don't think they were smoking though. So, um, you know, you can get all sorts of fishing equipment and get the fishing magazines, but you, and I'm all for becoming a better fisherman through information and studying, but you've got to go fishing. If you're going to be, call your, say, I'm a fisherman. And uh, so he sees these two brothers and he tells them to follow and, uh, 
Concerning uh, Peter and James, it says they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. Uh, No, that's James and John. Peter and James... That's Peter and Andrew said uh, immediately they left their nets and followed him. So the one emphasizes that they left their vocational calling, and the other is they actually left their parents. Now that is radical because it's, you know, the the family and all this kind of stuff today and stuff. But as we get into this, we're going to see Jesus' priorities about families and what family really is. But there's a reason why when you grow up, you have to go through a process of individuating. If there's anything that the modern church is not doing well, is we're not equipping and releasing our kids to be warriors for God by their late teenage years. You should kind of be running most of your life yourself, somewhere between 14 and 18. You should be able to handle money, hold down a job. Uh, You should be able to know why you're a Christian. You should be on fire for God yourself, and you should be able to study through any challenging idea that comes along and without calling mommy and saying, oh my God, mommy, I heard something different. Uh, is it biblical? Well, if I, you know, if my kid has that, I'd say, why don't you let me know in two weeks if it's biblical? <laughs> I'll certainly be supportive. Might even give you some a brainstorm of a few places to start looking. <laughs> but why don't you first come to me with a plan of what, how you're going to study this out? So um, this leaving and cleaving thing is so important. Consider, consider two characters in the Bible, in the Gospels. One is the rich young ruler. Right? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, well, which ones? Jesus, because he always knows what he's doing, amazing that people don't get, get that these are all deliberate, he goes, he lists him all the commandments that have to do with loving your neighbor as yourself which Jesus summarized the second great list of commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, and so forth. And the guy says, I've done all these things since my youth up. And Jesus doesn't debate that. He's not like, no way, no one can keep the law. He's like, okay then. Then he says, one thing you still lack. Go sell all you have and follow me. Because Jesus knew the guy had an idolatry problem. And that idolatry problem was with money and worldly success. And he knew that if the guy didn't leave that, he could never be Jesus' disciple. Now, we would have said, I was just kidding. We need your ties. We'll make you a deacon. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and get you a special pew and everything. Have somebody bring your coffee to you every Sunday. Uh, you know, Jesus let him go. Jesus said, love you, see you. <laughs> 
because Jesus loved him too much to let him walk with God on his own terms. I meet people who've been going to church all their life. They put all sorts of Jesus crud on, on the uh, Facebook pages, and, and they have all sorts of Jesus concerts, and they know Jesus, uh, what do you call them people, like pop culture music Jesus people, and, 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 but they don't know anything about God or Jesus, nor is their heart submitted because they've never really taken seriously following Jesus, including some of the things we're going to look at about what it means to be a disciple, reading his word. You can't be his disciple if you're not a student of his word any more than pigs can fly. Jesus made that clear. And if you don't leave certain things, you get get captured by what I call the Maple Heights principle, which remind me to talk about after I talk about Zacchaeus. Don't let me go on. Zacchaeus... The, the guy who climbed up in the sycamore tree was a short person. We used to have this uh, very short girl in the campus ministry in Bowling Green. When she got became a Christian, there was already like 70 people. And on our Friday night worship, we used to do it in the living room of the campus ministry house and dining room. And so we used to cram like 70 or more people into a room that was really could fit 20. <laughs> and uh, people used to say that when everyone was worshiping and people were a little bit more lively in worship back in those days, that they would go, some people would go to use the bathroom in the basement and they'd say, you know, the rafters are swaying when people are swinging. I'm like, I'm just hoping they'll never break. <laughs> And, uh, well, she was this short young little lady, and uh, so she used to actually get in the back and stand on one of the chairs so she could see the worship song. Then I always called her Zacchaeus as a result. But, um, um, you know, he wanted to see Jesus. And then Jesus, uh, because he hadn't read, like, how to win friends and influence people, and uh, he apparently didn't have American manners sometimes. He said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house for lunch. You just invited me. <laughs> I, I do that with John Gray all the time, just show up. How's it going? Got any food? Uh, so uh, uh, Zacchaeus is like, Zacchaeus is, is uh, so excited that he basically says, if I've cheated anybody, I'll do this and this. Now, if you don't know the whole Bible, you won't get the depth of what Zacchaeus is saying. The law required for stealing that you would restore, make restitution, and pay a penalty. And what Jesus does is takes the one-fourth penalty, 25% penalty, and he turns it on his head and pays four times instead of one-fourth as much of the penalty. So he's paying 16 times what the Bible requires. People always go, we don't need to tithe, it's the New Testament. Grace always says, uh, the law says don't lust but, or don't commit adultery, but I'm saying don't lust. The law says don't murder, don't be angry. Grace always establishes the law and the attitudes and motivations of the law. If you have grace working in your heart, no one will ever have to teach you to tithe. People might have to teach you. Now, listen, you give like 30, 40% of your income, and you really should be saving some money to send your kids to better schools or something like that. Then we, should, like, we should have to take people aside and talk to them about stuff like that. Like, I don't know if you should be giving a double or triple tithe until your God gives you a little bit more established. 
That was what happened to Zacchaeus when he followed Jesus. I suggest to you, if you're not having super extravagant responses in your love of God, you need to meet him. If someone still has to tell you to read your Bible, you need to cry out to God, oh God, save me in the sense of help me come to know you and your grace. Help it become more than going to church. Help me encounter the real, living, resurrected, ascended, glorified, pouring out his spirit, still doing miracles, Jesus. Because I'm not having that kind of gracious response. When Edwin comes over to dinner, I take the best hamburger and give him a bad one. <laughs> you know, And Jesus would have said, here, Edwin, have my hamburger too, <laughs> is what Zacchaeus is saying, telling us. Are you extravagant in your love for God? And do you express it extravagantly towards your... That's what, you know, we call it the parable of the prodigal God, but prodigal means extravagant. And it wasn't that the son's love was so wasteful. It was that the father's love was so wasteful. It was beyond understanding. He let this kid go and blow his whole inheritance. Then when he comes back repentant, he treats him like he's his lost, long, wonderful brother and so forth. And that's why the religious elder brother was so upset because God's love was that too extravagant for him. That's the scandal of the gospel. God takes the worst sorts of people and makes them the people he uses. And he doesn't ask your permission <laughs> or mine either. And that's why I love uh, when uh, people have the response of Zacchaeus. Now, if you don't get this whole leaving, cleaving thing right. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, in a little town called Brexville. Every year we had a, a Christmas tournament, which all the best teams uh, from the state of Ohio would come to wrestle in this Christmas tournament, except they never invited Maple Heights. <laughs> Maple Heights had a coach uh, who basically created a system. Now all, every city has this uh, but back then, uh, wrestling wasn't very popular. And if people wrestled in high school, it was usually because they couldn't make the football team or the basketball team or whatever. Now they start raising kids wrestling second, third grade. Well, Maple Heights did that all along. And they won the state championship eight straight years. Nobody was close. They, uh, they, uh, his sons went on to win national championships in college and so forth. And one of the things that Maple Heights guys would do is uh, in wrestling, if you get what's called an escape, you get one point. After they would take you down, they would try to pin you. If they couldn't pin you, they would just let you up and give you a free point. And the reason they did that was because taking down was worth two points. And if you win by 10 or more, you get four points for the team instead of three for winning the match. And secondly, it's easier to pin a guy off the takedown than it is in the course of the match. So they would take you down and have you pinned before you realized that they were going from a takedown to a pin. <laughs> and uh, when I wrestled the guy from Maple Heights, uh, 
I uh, I knew exactly how many lights were on the ceiling of the of the gym, and and, uh, and which ones needed change. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> uh, but I didn't get pinned because I got pinned once when I was in tenth grade, and I it was so embarrassing. I decided to build up my neck so much that I could, I could I would actually work out in, in practice by having our two hundred and fifty pound heavyweight sit on me, and I would and because I, I wrestled ninety eight pound weight class, hard to believe that now. Huh? I'm more than twice the man I used to be, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I would build I built up my neck so much that I could take I could just hold somebody up from not touching my shoulders with my neck for six minutes. <laughs> I I couldn't be pinned and I never got pinned again because so pretty much the, I got one point when I wrestled the guy from Maple Heights I lost 12 to 1 because he let me back up because he was having trouble pinning me now the believe it or not your flesh uh is is a gateway to allow a thing that's really exist I know modern people don't like this but there really is a Satan and he's the adversary of God that's what Satan means He's also called the devil, which means diabolos, means slanderer, accuser of the brethren. And he is a tempter. And he will actually allow you to have the impression that you're starting to make some progress with God so he could just take you back down again whenever it's whenever you start to share with someone, then you just blow your testimony or whatever. Whenever the church starts to grow, then a whole lot of people fall into sin and and uh, fall apart. And the issue is, have you completely left the old? Put Phil in your name. And believe me, that is the number one thing in becoming a disciple. You've got to die to the old John Bradbury or Anvesh or Josiah or whoever. Phil in your name. And Jesus said, the ruler of this world comes and he has nothing in me. In other words, he can't take me back down again. He can't take me down at all. I'm going to let him think he's taking me down and then I'm going to pin him. Let's move on. Luke 5, they left everything behind. John 14, I just quoted that. So let's move on to three kinds of discipleship. Um, do, you get, do you get what I'm saying about this leaving, cleaving? Gosh, I might have to stay on this a couple more weeks the way it's going. Three kinds of discipleship, information, formation, impartation. Uh, we have a saying, character before charisma. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. I believe God gives people all kinds of gifts. But your gifts will actually eventually sink you if you don't have the character to hold to withhold them. Many a sports star tells us that these days. Musicians who can't stay on the top continue to grow in their knowledge and wisdom of music and so forth because they can't control themselves. People who... Uh, you know, there, there's a principle that success will test you way more than the challenge to get to success. Now, um, on this thing, there's, there's information, formation, and impartation. 
I guess I'm not going to get to three ministries of all Christians because I really, and I should have watched my time better because I really want you to understand this. Most discipleship today is done through parachurch organizations. If you go to a Christian university, they have discipleship at the university. If you go to um, a secular university, they have groups that disciple at the secular universities. And in general, the most radical Christian groups groups are actually at secular universities because at secular university, you're either going to get radical with God or you're going to lose your faith. So, um, but most of this is done in what's called a parachurch fashion, para, the Greek word like periscope, to come alongside. A parachurch group is something that's that comes along, that, that is raised up, as to respond to needs that the church is supposed to be doing, but it isn't doing. Now, it's not the parachurch's fault. Don't pick on the parachurch. It's our fault. Let's become the church. So one of the great parachurch movements, for instance, was called Promise Keepers. And it was a movement that was real popular in the late 90s through, uh, I don't know, 2007, 8. But some of you might have old me old enough to remember Promise Keepers. And they would pack out the biggest stadiums in the country with men, in all men's meetings to worship and love God and so forth. And what they would hear is, as a follower of Jesus, you should really follow him. As a follower of Jesus, you should actually study the word. As a follower of Jesus, you should quit cheating on your wife. As a follower of Jesus, you should quit cheating financially. As a follower of Jesus, you should be one of the best workers as unto the Lord at your job. Now, that's a great message, but I, what, what I don't understand is why weren't these people hearing this in their churches? These people all went to Bible-believing churches, but nobody was discipling them. And so they were coming in droves to hear a message that deep down they knew they needed to hear and they weren't hearing in today's contemporary Christianity. Do you get what I'm saying? Now, second, so I want you to know that too much discipleship, you know, if you want to be a, a covenant member of Grace Christian Fellowship, we're going, you, you've got to have an older brother or sister that we've appointed to disciple you. That's it. We provide that for everyone. We have a leadership of 13 people who I have spent 12 years preparing to be able to do that and do it well. And we've identified six more that we hope to have on that team in a year or two. And I would love to see that ministry grow. Because in, if you study apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, shepherds do the things that elders do, but they're not always elders. If you study all the words about elders and overseers, episcopos, presbyteros, and so forth, an, an, uh, an episcopos, a bishop, is always a presbyteros, an elder, and an elder is always a bishop in the New Testament. Okay, there's an, always a plurality of these, but the, a shepherd isn't is sometimes all elders are shepherds, but not all shepherds are elders. Because a church of 100 people should have at least 15 shepherds with 15 more being prepared. 
because how are you going to take care of them? Discipleship is nothing else except spiritual parenting. The reason we try as much as possible to make the leadership team married couples is because we want you to see a fine example of a husband serving his wife and kids being brought up the right way and all these kind of things. Now, we have some single guys that do it because we just have the need. And some of the single guys are really mature, good guys. But, um, And we're certainly, we have some single ladies who do it as well. But um, discipleship should be done in the church, according to the Bible. It was Jesus' model. His, we've got to not say, we've got to try his model and do it. We won't find it wanting. It really works. Now, it only works if we get past the second point, is that today's discipleship is primarily informational. Let me tell you that a, uh, hopefully from the two teachings I did last week, you understand, especially uh, the, I uh, turned John's catechism teaching into a, to a, to a series of uh, two teachings on catechism, we are all about studying the Word. We want you to find grace to become a serious Bible studier. We want to help you overcome. If you grew up maybe in public school or whatever and you're not that good a reader, we have ways of helping you overcome that. You'll have to put in the effort. We can guide you. But information is important. It's, in fact, foundational. If you look at the structures of the, God, of the epistles, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is information. It's the milk of the word, and milk builds the framework. It builds strong bones, so to speak. It's theological ideas. But Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is the flesh, the muscle of the word. Now, if your muscle wasn't attached through covenants, uh, the word for ligament, by the way, is the same word as covenant, if your muscle wasn't attached to the bones and didn't have a counteracting muscle and so forth, when you moved your arm, it would just fly over here, pop off or something. Uh, and you certainly, if you didn't have a corresponding muscle, if you weren't related to other members of the body of Christ, you couldn't, br you couldn't bring it back. Every exercise has to have its abduction and induction. I don't just have squeezy things for my hands. I have things that go the opposite way. <laughs> so I can strengthen my fingers. And uh, musicians do that, too. Um, I do still because I'm old. Um, so um, you've, uh, information is important. But the information is so that you can build the muscles of it. That's why in Romans, Romans 1 through 4 is Paul's first argument for the gospel, metaphysics, what it's all about. Romans 5, 6, and 7 is his third, second argument. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is his third argument. Romans 12 he, through 16, he tells us what to do as a result of all that. Colossians follows the same pattern. The first two chapters are all milk, theology, so forth. Second two chapters, how should you live it out? So information is important. Jesus taught information, but one of the things you need to understand when you read Jesus is that his teaching is also, also formational and impartational. Now, I don't have time to go into it, 
But in Matthew I, Matthew, I just listed some of the great informational discourses of Jesus. You can read them for yourself. I gave them to you. If you want, I have a whole list out of John to give you that's even longer than the ones out of Matthew, but I didn't have room for it on the page. You can email me, and I'll give them, send them to you. John 5, let's talk about what Jesus said about information. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these that testify about me. So he's saying, now what scriptures is he talking about? At this time, there were no New Testament scriptures yet. He's talking about what Christians today call the Old Testament, which we ought to call the Jewish scriptures. It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The word that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So that's to say they're also impartational and, and, and uh, formational. So Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, if you believed in him, if you continue in my word, the Greek word there, meno, means to abide, dwell in, continually live in, inside of my word. Then you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So reading the reverse negative, if you don't abide in his word, you're a false disciple, and you won't get set free, and you won't know reality, because truth is reality. Uh, he goes on to talk about uh, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And uh, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me from he wrote about me. So does that mean we should just read the New Testament? No, he's saying read Moses because Moses wrote about him. Everyone's I, I, I can't stand it when I hear people go, I can't stand reading Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. As John pointed out a few weeks ago, Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy more than any other book. He quoted from Genesis 1 and 2 as if they were historically accurate. So Moses wrote about him. Formation. Um, I will pick up with next week because we're out of time. And I, I, I think I, so this uh, Jesus making disciples things is going to be a mini-series within the mini-series. <laughs> but uh, we need to understand discipleship. We really do. Amen.